Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by my colleague, Luke Curdenian, who I must begrudgingly admit did a heck of a job recapping the Masters. Luke, what's up? Ah, oh, thanks, Ted. That might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me. So That's... Don't, don't get used to it. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I mean, it went... It seems like it was... And we'll talk about it. But it seems like it was a particularly interesting, exciting Masters event at your favorite place in the world, Augusta. It certainly is my favorite place in the world from a golfing sense. Um, Not from a general ethical perspective, but um, yeah, I think it it was funny. It was one of these tournaments. I mean, I'm sure baseball games go through this, right? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was one of these Masters where maybe two-thirds or even three-quarters of the way through the final round, uh, everyone was kind of like, hey, this is kind of boring. You know, it kind of looked like nothing was going on. The nearest challenger, who was Sergio at that point, looked like he was going to be just sort of fading away. And all of a sudden, it just became awesome. And so what we got was sort of an hour of really good golf, of really entertaining of, of a really entertaining tournament, and that made everybody else forget about this slightly boring sort of four hours that preceded it. Well, I know we're going to get back to that, and we're going to go into our favorite things of the week, as we often do, but I just want to point out before we go on that there's a very interesting phenomenon happening right now on this podcast, which is that we are separated by, I believe, about three blocks as we speak, and there is some sort of fire or ambulance commotion in our neighborhood. Hopefully, every everybody okay but I am alternately hearing sirens in the background on my end like in my backyard and then sometimes I hear them over your microphone and I assume they're the same sirens it's just it seems like the they're they are like driving around in some sort of mad circle that goes perhaps a three block radius and so sometimes they're coming into your your microphone and then now now I believe back into my microphone very much a breaking news situation we have right. in, in the sort of Upper East Side of Manhattan. Right. Yeah, we're going to find out. We're going to have to evacuate like midway through this podcast, possibly. Absolutely. And just to put this in perspective, Ted and I, I mean, what are we, like three blocks away from one another? I mean, it, the, the, you could make, like, I remember Ted smoked on his grill once, or which I'm sure you're going to talk about later. I'm doing and, that as we speak, but yes. And, 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 and the amount of smoke that flooded the neighborhood was it was visible from my garden. I mean, you could probably make an interesting bet and say that could Ted shout loud enough and I be able to hear it? Like, probably, I think. It would have to be a heck of a shout. It would have to be, a, I think, late at night, I probably could. Right when yeah. it gets quiet. It's just, there's so much ambient noise in New York City. Like, beyond just that siren Maybe if you're listening intently, I've got a pretty good microphone and it's close to my face, but uh, there's construction going on about three doors down from me, so they make some noise and just so much traffic and stuff that it just kind of creates like the buzz of New York City that's always there. But then if you if you go out, if you're out at like 3 a.m., it's completely quiet. Yeah, complete. It, it's it's one of these things too where you sort of once you I feel like once you live in New York long enough, you very much start tuning it out. And then you go to a place like South Carolina where my mom lives for example and 
it's just like even during a fairly busy part of the day, there's just no noise, and, and it's I kind mean, of eerie. You're like, wow, it, this is what silence looks like. That hap that like that literally happens to me when I go to Queens. <laughs> like it's not even <laughs> you don't even have to leave like a five mile area for for to be overwhelmed by how quiet it is compared to where we live, or worse yet, compared to where we work, which is right in the thick of Midtown, where there's just like too much noise and people and traffic and nonsense to deal with for me, uh, which is why we're both, I believe, speaking from our backyards now. But let's get into it. Tell me, and I feel like I know where we're going with this. Tell me. Oh, I, wait, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to start. I'm supposed to start. Is that good? Yes, take it away. Tell All right, uh, so you're going to tell me your favorite thing soon, but I start because then you get the last word. So I will start with uh, a little bit off my normal beaten path, I believe, and this is something that our colleague Michelle Martinelli wrote about, and it was an interesting thing. I, I, I just, it, because I agree with it wholeheartedly, from Dale Earnhardt Jr., who is one of the foremost NASCAR guys right now, son of uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr., also an extremely famous NASCAR guy. Uh, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. is on a bit of a campaign, or at least discussing it on his podcast, that he wants better Wi-Fi service in at NASCAR events. And I feel like that is a thing that all sporting venues need to get with by now like we've seen some effort made in a lot of places to provide wi-fi but it seems like so much of the experience now is like hey like tweet this instagram this or like during baseball games you know every every inning has some sort of sponsored event and it's like tweet out to you know whatever company this thing that you're doing right now and then they expect you to do that on your lousy data plan or without high functioning wi-fi i just think we're ready for every place really not just sporting places but we just need to have wi-fi everywhere like it's just time to get with that call elon musk make it happen oh, there should be free fast wi-fi all over the world that's what i want and i feel like dale Earnhardt jr on the same page with me bring it on i do think that i am sometimes slightly surprised when like even I go on the New York subway and there isn't Wi-Fi in certain stops, and I think oh, there's. I mean, there's not Wi-Fi in most spots, right? Like there's in most spots in most spots, but there are some. There are some still off the beaten path, uh, which don't have them, and, and I kind of feel like we should be at the point where, especially in the big cities like New York, there should just be kind of baseline Wi-Fi everywhere. Well, right? and like, like if if you subscribe to certain cable companies, they kind of do that, but it's not great coverage and there will be again a lot of dead zones a lot of places where it's really slow i even feel like from you know as media i'll go to places a lot of times where the wi-fi is just not so great and it makes it tough to do your work not that that's like the chief complaint because then it's like oh i guess i i don't have to work as fast today because the wi-fi is not compli complying but <laughs> i would i you know it's 2017 let's all get with it I want Wi-Fi everywhere. I don't. I run out of data every week or every month. I, I keep getting text messages that you know five percent of your data left, and then it's, it's gone. I want to be connected. And again, like and like I'm I'm curmudgeonly by nature, and so a lot of me when you're at a, a baseball game or a football game or whatever, it's like we'll we'll sit down and shut up and turn your phone off and watch the game. 
and I believe that, except that I don't feel it should apply to me, because if something happens in the game, and then I'm intrigued by it, and I want to look up whether that's ever happened before, or, you know, this guy's career batting average against left-handers, or whatever it is, I want to be able to do that immediately. It's just the way it is now. We need information faster than we could have possibly conceived some 20 years ago. But we're there, and so, you know, like I said, bring it on. And look, there is nothing, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this, Ted, there is nothing I loathe more than media members complaining about media conditions at a free sporting event they get to cover for their job. Well, yeah, like, oh, but no, the I, free I, food's I not good enough. I cannot yeah. stand it. I cannot, but, but <laughs> being hypocritical now that I've just got that out of the way, it is a real headache. When you go, I mean, like, and look, I obviously cover a lot of golf tournaments, and there, you know, uh, if you if you go to a lot of sports stadiums, for example, I'm not going into the heart of Pittsburgh uh, and covering a Steelers game, which is in sort of the heartbeat of the city. I'm going out to the, to a sort of golf resort, you know, half an hour outside or tangentially near a city uh, outside the city of Pittsburgh, and. The reception isn't very good there, and if it's a Lynx-type course where it's on the water, that's even worse, and it becomes a real hassle to figure out the sort of landing spots, or, or not landing spots, excuse me, figure out the uh, to figure out what's happening in the golf tournament, because you could be on the 10th hole by the water watching something, there could be a lead change or a pivotal something happening two holes away, and you have no idea, because you don't have just no Wi-Fi, you have no service, and that becomes a real problem for fans and for media, and um, it, it, it is something, it is kind of a problem, um, now that, I, it is kind of a problem. Well, you know, and, and you might know this from, from being uh, in the office while I'm out on spring training, but for spring training for me, it's usually like half of the work is, you know, sort of standing around waiting for baseball players and talking to them, and half of the work is finding a place near the spring training park with pretty good Wi-Fi and like a coffee shop with it, a coffee shop with a decent seat where I can set up and actually get the work done. Because a lot of times uh, it's a minor league stadium, and and you know if it's a if a big story has come through town and there's you know 25 members in the media there or whatever. It's just, it's the system gets overwhelmed, and again, it should all cater to me. Absolutely. I mean, look, <laughs> it's not just that Ted, this, the, the issue is not that Ted Berg wants to connect with the world. Ted Berg could give to, to, to uh, he could give, he couldn't care less about connecting with the world. It's about the world connecting with Ted Right! Berg. Are the people, the, 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 what, this the, is about the people. The like, people deserve this, the people deserve this. The people need their dose of Ted every single day. Right, all right, uh, give me your, your top good thing. My top good thing, let's just kick off, talk about the Masters. We talked about it a little bit. It was, it was as I said, it, 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 there looked to be a point early in the day where it was going to be pretty disappointing. Everyone was thinking about Jordan Spieth making a run. He kind of flailed pretty badly. Ricky Fowler, who a lot of people, young sort of face of golf in this new generation, in the post-Tiger generation, fizzled out very quickly. And uh, people started thinking that this was going to be a bit of a dud. Um, Justin Rose, who I love because he's a fellow Englishman, um, he had a three-stroke lead at one point, looked like it was going to be kind of a washout, and Sergio Garcia really came storming from behind. He made a fantastic eagle on the 15th, he made a good pass save two, two holes before that, and it 
culminated in a playoff, in him winning on the first playoff hole by draining, a, he had two putts to win, he ended up draining a 20-footer or so to win his first major, a green jacket, a major he never thought he'd win. And, and it was kind of a good feel-good moment. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed with Justin Rose just because I'm a total homer when it comes to, when it comes to rooting for uh, fellow Englishmen. But um, the relief, to, to see the relief on Sergio Garcia's uh, face was really it was a it was kind of uh, the to use a cliche it's it's why we watch sports and but he so so I remember Sergio Garcia as like the he was like the junior Tiger Woods when Tiger Woods was a thing right it was like Sergio Garcia was like the next guy is that correct that's absolutely right yeah so it's so to paint a picture of in 2000 was Tiger Woods had a bunch of really good years, but if you were to isolate one stretch where he was like the absolute best at his very peak, you would probably say it was between 2000 and 2002. He was just dominating in ways that golf had never experienced before. He was doing things that people didn't even think were possible and really looked unbeatable. And uh, in 1999, so a year before the stretch, 19-year-old Sergio Garcia comes along, turns pro, and finishes second at the PGA Championship to Tiger Woods. And so basically, all of Europe said, oh my gosh, we've now found, maybe not our equivalent to Tiger, but we've found like, the European answer to Tiger if that makes sense. And then right. the rest of the golf world started salivating, thinking, oh, this is going to be it. This is going to be the two big guns for the next 15 years. Like, these are going to be the Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer of, of the 21st century. And it would be unfair. Well, I guess it's fair to say that Sergio certainly never lived up to that hype. I mean, that's not to say he wasn't a good player. He absolutely was. But... Um, as each major passed, he kept getting sort of close calls, but he would either maybe cough one up in a major or it just wouldn't really happen. And as Tiger Woods was just accelerate, accelerating away, Sergio, who was touted as the guy who was supposed to kind of keep on his heels, just didn't win, really. Um, he, he won some big events, but never won in the majors. And... Um, it took a long time. He's 37 now, and which again isn't that old by golfing standards. But when you've been on the scene since 1999, it feels like an eternity. And golf fans were just so used to Sergio Garcia not doing it and not really living up to the type. So it was nice to finally see him accomplish what so many people thought he would do earlier. Do you know what he's going to serve for food? Has he said yet? He's he said he's going. He hasn't revealed it fully, but he said he's going to go full traditional Spanish. So probably like a paella or something. That's cool. I mean, I can get down with that. Like I some know, sort right? of tapas situation. Tapa maybe situation. maybe cured meats. They 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 do good cured meats in Spain. There are certainly worse food options to go. I, I kind of hope one day somebody comes along and just like you know look like a lot of people at. I only in I only have Soylent. Because I am like right, so like, so, do you know Soylent? It's like the thing they came up with for like coder bros to be your sort of one meal. Like this is the only thing you need to eat. It's it's balanced shakes oh, that like w this can replace all of your food. And it would be funny if there was some guy in the future who's just like, yeah, we're all gonna drink Soylent shakes. We're gonna do Soylent or tofu or right. maybe like a 
quite an exotic food, like, you know, Ethiopian food, which, of course, is delicious, and you have to eat with your hands. It's kind of a mental adjustment. And, and to serve it to a lot of these highfalutin, uh, older Augusta National members in their green jackets, it would be quite a funny scene. That is, so just yeah. To pull a curveball. <laughs> I would definitely do something. I would try to find the food I liked that alienated the most golfers. <laughs> I don't know what I would have to think about what that is like what is it that I love that is going to really put these people off but I, that would be the, that would be the I route feel for me like, I mean I love Ethiopian food I feel like Ethiopian food would be a good candidate that is definitely that is a really good candidate yeah for because sure because not only does it have sort of a different spices that we're not always used to but you know you also have to eat it with your hands with this kind of a spongy crepe type thing which is just again it's sort of an adjustment I feel like that would be up there in, in putting its uh, putting its uh, uh, nomination forward I gotta say though I gotta say and like this is you know being honest and no judgments I, I haven't Ethiopian I've, I've eaten a bunch of Ethiopian food because people are always like Ethiopian food it's incredible you got to come eat it and I it's never really done it for me it's never got like I can see I guess I can imagine the ways in which it could be good maybe I haven't had food from the right Ethiopian places like I'm not dismissing Ethiopian food just based on like my three or four experiences I just haven't loved any of my three or four experiences that makes sense. I mean, uh, so I love steak tartare, and there's a... See, I haven't I haven't had that at any... I think I've gone with uh, people who were, like, maybe too squeamish or something. Because I've, uh, I've been led to believe that that's what to do at an Ethiopian place. I've never done that. Yep, that's exactly what I do, and I, I, I have really enjoyed it every time. That said, like, I don't want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. Like, I've had Ethiopian food, you know four times in my life and really enjoyed all of them but when I think about types of food that I'm going to get I, I don't, it's not up it's not necessarily very high up there in my sort of favorite uh, fa favorite types of food standings but you know I, I every time I go which is sparingly I enjoy it every time see I might go with something like and it's a lot more mainstream I feel like at least in the United States but like Thai food, I find, is something that, like, for people of our generation, it's so, such a given, like, oh, yeah, you know what you like at the Thai food place, like, we order Thai food all the time, but for people slightly older and people who aren't uh, so close to so many Thai food places, it is extremely exotic-seeming and strange, so, like, that would be the balance for me, because I love Thai food, it's, like, my default takeout option, but... I could see how that might set off some golfer types. Yeah, I could see that. Too. Really spicy, too. We'd go really spicy. <laughs> so, so you take out the current competitors just out of the situation, right? Right, so, right. Smart. It's a good strategy. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with my, my, good, my next good thing. And this might be a little esoteric, but it's interesting to me. And it's something that's been a big topic in baseball for a while, really since the, since the postseason. So... I don't know how much of how much of the background you need on this, Luke, but uh, in in recent years, really since the late '80s or early '90s, major league teams have by and large run their bullpens the same way, which is to say, we have one guy. He is our closer. He is our best reliever. He pitches the ninth inning and only the ninth inning, and he only pitches when we have a lead. And for the most part, he only pitches when we have a lead of three runs or fewer, because those are the those are the qualifications for a save. And so they they pitch they they operate 
to that stat, which isn't a perfect stat. It's sort of uh, an arbitrary endpoint to decide, okay, three runs is what constitutes a save. If it's four runs, it's not a save. Uh, if it's a tie game, we, we, you don't get that stat, even if you pitch really well in a tie game. Uh, and, and so in the postseason, and, and there, there's a lot of other aspects to it, too. Uh, teams tend to then they, then they sort of follow down the line. There's an eighth-inning guy. There's a seventh-inning guy. And the argument for it has been, well, guys like to know their roles, and I get that because I do think that it's helpful to know what you're expected to do when you show up to work in the morning. But uh, in the postseason, we saw the Indians especially sort of break that mold, and they used Andrew Miller, and, and that's a luxury that not a lot of teams have, is an incredibly dominant uh, reliever who is not who's not inked into that closer rule role. Uh, they used Miller in the fourth inning, in the fifth inning, in the sixth inning, in in postseason games, and sort of shook up, I think, a w the way a lot of the league looks at bullpens and and how they're using bullpens. And this year, it's very very early, and I don't want to go all in on the Cincinnati Reds bullpen by any stretch. But the Cincinnati Reds, which is a team that uh, faces almost no ex almost no expectations, and so uh, a good ground for sort of messing with stuff and and seeing what experience uh, what experiments you can pull off, they have essentially moved to the model of like we use our best arm in the be in the biggest situations, and if that's going to mean doing something like they did yesterday, which was bringing in really their best setup man, I believe, in the third inning uh, and 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 riding him for three innings because he was remaining effective rather than waiting until the eighth or the ninth, which would be the traditional way. Uh, the Reds have said, and manager Brian said, Price has said, like, we're trying to win the games. It's not about getting guys saves. It's not about getting guys holds. It's not about pitching to any sort of stats. It's trying to win the game, and so we're going to use what we believe is the best guy for every situation no matter what time of the game it is. And the Reds uh, sort of paid uh, big dividends on that strategy already because in in Monday's game, their bullpen threw seven perfect innings to, to lock down a win. Uh, the A's have also sort of taken a different approach. They're going with uh, matchups based on closers. So if they have a bunch of lefties coming up, they'll use Sean Doolittle. If they have a bunch of right righties, they'll use Santiago Casilla. A lot of teams seem like they're sort of pushing the at least the recent envelope for how bullpens are used, and I think it's awesome because I think it's long overdue. You know, it, it's, it's funny that you mentioned, just to preface this, I know about as much about baseball as Ted does about golf. So, uh, coming at it from a very amateurish point of view. But I will say, this reminds me of two things. The first is that um, I was talking with our colleague Stephen earlier in the year about the Atlanta Falcons, actually. And um, it was funny, because we read this thing, and I forget who wrote it, but, he's, but they were talking about sort of Dan Quinn's uh, uh, defensive strategy and structure and philosophy, rather. And they said, like, look, there's so much droning on in the NFL about setting a philosophy, about, like, playing towards a philosophy, and yada, yada, yada. When, if, if, if you were to use that mindset in everyday life, it wouldn't hold water. So if, if you went to your wife, Ted, and your wife said, um, Ted, why didn't you do the dishes? And you said, oh, because I'm too busy setting a philosophy for doing the dishes in the long run. Like, people... That, you know, is, that is exactly you, what I say. You, you, you would get. You would I'm get sorry, involved. but I'm fundamentally opposed to doing the dishes. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm setting a philosophy about how how dishes can be clean. There comes a point where 
you just it's just it comes it comes a point where when push comes to you just want to win right like just do the things that increase your chances of winning period right and, i mean and, and like off of the hand waving and the theorizing and, the, and and it strikes me as like using the best guys in the best possible situations to win the game right now in the short term seems like it sort of reminds me of that and and it's definitely that. and and look like like it's a complicated thing right because uh ten it tends to be that the biggest situations are late in games so there's a case that you do want to reserve your guys for later in the games and there are going to be times when this strategy blows up in the Reds' face and uh, baseball teams are frequently run out of fear I think where where teams say like well if we buck the conventional wisdom and it fails then we're all getting fired. Right and and so why buck? Because if you if you go with the conventional wisdom and it fails, then at least you were going with the conventional wisdom, and no one's gonna no one's gonna that's not gonna cost you your job. So yeah. baseball and I think all professional sports to some extent, I think are, are run a lot by guys who are trying to keep their jobs. And the easiest way to keep your job is to follow the path of resistance, at least resistance, and do the thing that it seems like makes sense in the traditional form of, of how the game has, has been running. And so it's cool to me to see clubs, especially a team, again, like uh, a team like the Reds with very little to lose, to say like, hey, why don't we try something out this year? And, and I think the Padres are trying stuff out this year, another team in, the, in sort of the same situation. And I think you'll see a lot of these teams, especially as more and more and more and more information comes into baseball and teams figure out better ways to synthesize it, I think we're starting to see the game evolve in new and faster ways than we have maybe in the past three decades. Now, I do have a quick question for you, Ted, because this, the second thing this reminded me of is that, again, like, excuse my lack of baseball. That's, knowledge, you can be, you can be cool. You can, you can okay. admit that you, I don't care. We're, we're not, we're okay. not, well, the cool. one thing we cool. never try to do here is pretend like we know stuff we don't. Okay, I do, yeah, absolutely, and I do not. But I remember, so I used to go to a lot, when I was down in college at the University of South Carolina, um, I went to a lot of spring training, Yankee spring training games. It was down in Florida, so it was like a fun spring break thing. Anyway, um, and I remember during this time, I forget what year it was, but it was like Jabba Chamberlain was this young prospect who yep. was co was put pitching in the bullpen. And the entire, and he was throwing like insane speeds from the bullpen, and everyone was talking about how the Yankees needed to manage his transition into being a starter. And I... Coming at this from an outsider perspective, I remember thinking, like, wait, but this guy is, sounds like he's the best <laughs> relief pitcher, not just in baseball at the moment, but, like, in theory could be the best if he just stays in this relief role as his, in history, um, where he could just sh constantly be shutting players down. Why would you be interested in transitioning him to being a starter? Um, well, so it's, it's an interesting question, and in Jabba Chamberlain's case, it turned out he was better suited for the bullpen. It never worked transitioning to him starter. Now, some people would say they never really gave him a long enough leash, but he didn't really have, I don't think, the body type to hold up as a starter. He he was like a bit one dimensional. He was well, he was a guy who threw hard and he had I think he had like one really I mean still he's still around. He's still pitching. I don't think he's in the majors right now. And he's a, he's a heck of a nice guy as it so happens. And and I think that that does kind of play into the hype sometimes is when 
the media all sort of, sort of falls in love with a guy and, and starts dreaming on the possibilities of like, hey, this guy who's super nice to us might also be a really good pitcher. Uh, but Chamberlain was like, he was a, a really, really well-regarded prospect and a guy who it did seem sort of thrived on the adrenaline that comes with pitching in the bullpen because it means, you know, coming in in the middle of the game, tough, sometimes in a tight spot, and throwing the ball as hard as you possibly can. Whereas as a starter, you need to pace yourself. But the reason, and, and I would say the Yankees were right to try it, the reason to stretch him out and make him a starter is that a good reliever, your best reliever is maybe throwing as many as 80 innings, and that's the high end per year. And a good starter is throwing uh, probably 200 innings a year. So if you're thinking, well, this guy's really, really good, you want to get the really, really good guy on the mound for the most possible innings. And again, it doesn't, it's not like a direct correlation where you can say, like, this guy, it be, we can expect, okay, his fastball will be down two miles per hour if we make him a starter and you know but his breaking stuff will stay the same and we can expect that he'll have this level of success because some guys do tend like I said there's there's the adrenaline aspect of it some guys seem like they ha they just have the knack for dialing it up in short bursts whether that's about how they pace themselves whether they never never learn to pace themselves maybe that's that's part of it uh, and and for Chamberlain it just kind of seemed like he kept getting hurt whenever they made him a starter and so that's that's certainly an aspect of it too but I think more than anything it's that uh, as a reliever you're only facing a batter one time in a game and so if you have two pitches if you have a good fastball and one breaking ball that works that's all you need as a reliever whereas if you're facing guys three or four times in the same game you need a bunch of different pitches unless they're two extremely good pitches uh, you need you mostly need a bunch of different offerings to try to keep guys off balance that's interesting yeah I, I yeah I, I ask because I feel like this is a it's it's almost like a trap that I feel like happens across every kind of sport in various different ways where you'll look at a guy who's incredibly good in one area and they think like you know to use a football analogy they may look at a guy who's really good uh, Jay Cutler type who's really good at going downfield fast even though he's a little erratic or Brett Favre is probably the better example of this and a lot of teams will look at that and go "Ooh, this guy's really good at this if we could just give him you know, this skill and that skill that he doesn't have, and we can make him a really well-rounded guy. Or when the Green Bay Packers were so successful with Brett Favre because they just took what he had and just embraced, just kind of dialed it up to 100 and didn't really worry about what he didn't do. And they just ended up having however many years with a really unique weapon that in the long run actually kind of helped them win games because it was so unique. And I feel like that, that might, it just kind of, it's something I always find myself thinking about. Well, I can imagine this happening in baseball where you have a pitcher, say, who's like a really good one or two tool guy, and they get obsessed with trying to grow their third and fourth tools, and they just don't even, when maybe the better strategy would be to just stick with the two thing, the two slightly one-dimensional tools that they do have, and just having, making a really unique weapon out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say a good, a uh, good correlation, and this is going back to when I followed football, so you, you gotta go back like 10 years ago, but uh, it felt like a lot of times you'd get a guy who's like an exceptionally talented kick returner, and you know the best in the league and like a, a definite Hester type guy where yeah. they're so good at returning kicks and punts which is such a, a distinct skill I think in the NFL because there's nothing else you're doing that's like that right like you're not usually running 
straight into the other team's defense with that much distance. And so that is not really like any... I mean, there, there's obviously speed is a part of it. Obviously, catching ability is a part of it. Obviously, elusiveness is a part of it. And so there are, there are certainly overlapping skills with being a great NFL running back or wide receiver. But nothing you do is quite like returning a kick. And so it always felt like teams would say, like, well, this guy's so fast and so explosive on kick returns. Let's find other ways to use him. And to me, it never seemed like uh, with those elite kick return guys, they ever really found a way to use that guy. And then what ends up happening is he becomes such a big part of the offense, or you, you make him such a big part of the offense, that maybe it takes something away from his kick return abilities, and it means he's less fresh when it is time to return the punt late in the game when you need the big yardage. So, yeah. So, like, I, I do understand the uh, the argument like this guy works in this role let's stick with him I mean the other the other thing in baseball is like uh, there will be guys who get a label as a platoon guy you play against left-handed pitching or you play against right-handed pitching and never the opposite and so then those guys never get the opportunity to be the all-round player because they just don't get the reps against the same-handed pitching. And so there's, it's always sort of the balance you need to strike. And it's one of those things where sometimes you kind of, and in baseball now, I find myself doing this increasingly, sometimes you kind of have to defer to the team. Uh, when I first started covering baseball, and this is, it's been such an incredible revolution over the past 10 years and I think part of it is probably me getting a little bit older and wiser and more understanding but I think a lot of it is the way baseball has changed teams used to do dumb stuff all the time and it was really easy to identify like here's something the Toronto Blue Jays are doing in the year 2008 that I know to be a bad idea and nowadays it seems like all the teams are so smart Every team, every single team in baseball is employing someone in an analytics department who is way, way, way smarter than I am. And I don't think I could honestly say that 10 years ago, but now I can say comfortably that every team has, like, not just one person, every team has, like, an army of guys who are way smarter than me. And so when I see a team doing something dumb, now I kind of approach it with, like, hesitation, thinking, like, Maybe this team knows something, right? Maybe there's one guy who's really hot on this guy's launch angle or his exit velocity or some stat I don't really know how to synthesize. And that team that I think is doing something that doesn't make sense is actually actually doing something extremely smart whether or not it works out. There's also an added factor here that that the market, just, just the free market within baseball, sometimes... Uh, forces the hands of these teams. Like, if the Yankees were to have said to Jarba Chamberlain, nah, we kind of want you in this reliever role and you're just going to be a lockdown reliever for us for the next 10 years. Um, who, what's to say that any, you know, the Mariners or any number of other teams would have said, hey, want to be a starter for us? We'll pay you this. And well, yeah, well, so, so teams have, like, the first six years of a guy they can't leave. So they have the six years to mess around with them. Um, and, and then, yeah, but then when, when it comes to free agency or signing an extension, that's where it becomes an issue, right? That's where it's like, well, I don't want to sign an extension yeah. with this team. Uh, they're, they're not going to use me as a starter. I've always wanted to be a starter. And then, yeah, and then the Mariners swoop in and make you a starter. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's, let's get on to, so wait, who's, now it's your, it's your next get good thing. Now, returning to the Masters, but in a slightly different role here, there was uh, news, or, or not even news, Sergio Garcia on the Today Show, uh, you know, he's getting married to his, to his fiancée later this summer, and, um, and they asked him about the wedding, and they sort of in jest said, 
will you be wearing your green jacket to the wedding? Of course, Masters winners get a green jacket after they win. And Sergio, in all seriousness, says, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm seriously considering it. We've definitely talked about it and was not joking. So now I want to put the question to you, Ted. Would you, in that situation, wear a green jacket to the wedding? I, if, look, and again, like, I, the, the appeal of the green jacket is not that great to me because I'm not a huge golf guy, but if there were some corresponding jacket, I know, if I won the Masters, I'd be really psyched about that, right? Even, <laughs> especially because I've golfed, like, a total of 12 times in my life, so that would be, like, a really impressive feat. I don't think I'd ever... easy 1.8 million in a green jacket. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever take it off. Like, I don't think there'd be a question of whether I was wearing it to my wedding. It would be like, well, this is my thing now. I got this green jacket. I'm wearing it literally every single day because I have achieved the top thing I am ever going to achieve. So I am with him. I'm with him if it's comfortable. And if if he can't convince his, his fiance and his family and everyone else that, like, we can have, like, a T-shirt and shorts wedding, which I couldn't pull off either, then, yeah, man, I'd wear the jacket. I think I would too, you know. I think it's one of these things where, is it a little, um, like, I guess some could uh, perceive it as tacky, right? Like, I, I can imagine if you were Sergio Garcia that you don't want to be defined as, or, or when you're, you're... Do you not? Do you not? Do uh, I, I, I would be cool with that. Like, oh, I, you're, you're sorry. Uh, don't define me as the best in the world at my thing that I do. No, but like, it, it, uh, professional <laughs> athletes think this way, so they don't think like, oh, you know, like, I'm happy I won the Masters, but I'm going to win more, and I don't want people to think that I'm so in awe about winning one green jacket that I won't win another British Open later. Well, like, but that's the problem. Been... That's the problem, is people need to own it more and be like, yeah, you're, you're, you're damn right I'm the best. I'm wearing this jacket until I get the next one. The, the one thing is, it's, it's fairly timeless, right? Like, uh, the green jacket, to, it, 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 by golf standards, especially in the golf world, like, green jackets never go out of style within the universe of golf style being what it is. Right. Um, he could look back, you know, Sergio Garcia's grandkids could look back at their picture of their wedding day, and he's in the green jacket, and they think, uh, he's got that green jacket, that's pretty awesome. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to, uh, from a fashion perspective, it's not going to age as, say, flare jeans, Mike. Um, so I mean, if I were like, if I were a major league baseball player, I would wear my own jersey on the regular, right? If you're a star, like, I, I no one ever does that, right? But like, people wear other people's jerseys for fashion. That's weird for me. If like, I, I don't, I don't own any like baseball or football players stuff I used to and like no judgments to people who do if you want to support a guy that much go ahead it's not my deal but if I had like a Ted Berg jersey and I was like famous baseball player or football player or whatever uh, yeah yeah man I'd wear my own jersey it would be funny as hell yeah I, I agree I think um yeah no I, I agree I feel like you know, I, I always have a certain amount of respect to somebody who, like, really owns their number. You know, it's like, sometimes you'll see, like, football players or whatever, and they'll have, like, a, a gold chain or whatever with their number on it. And I'm like, you know, I kind of think that's cool. For some irrational, I don't know why reason, I can't really put my finger on it, but I kind of like it when somebody's, like, when somebody trademarks in their own mind, at least, like, their number. Uh, and it kind of is a similar thing. Well, so the, so there's a guy in the Mets, Ioannis Cespedes, and he, he plays for the Mets. The Mets wearing blue and orange, but he has this 
neon yellow color that is just kind of like his signature color and I don't know I guess maybe it started with the A's because the A's do have yellow or maybe it's something that dates back to his time in Cuba I don't know when neon yellow became his thing but there is never a time on the field where he is not wearing at least one item and usually like up to five whether it's on his cleats or on his batting gloves or on his he has an arm sleeve or his uh, you know sometimes he'll have uh, often actually he'll be wearing a pair of team color batting gloves with a pair of neon yellow batting gloves sticking out of his back pocket like a second pair just for flash and I kind of love that and like he has that's his own signature color and so he also owns a, a ranch near where the Mets play in Port St. Lucie and some people visited it and the reports from the rancher that like yeah it's just like totally a ranch but then like every once in a while you see some accent of this neon yellow and that's how you know it's Cespedes' ranch. That is cool I will say I will reel it back a little bit in saying that since Tiger Woods owned red which is so which was so awesome when he first did that it, there's since been this slightly annoying trend in golf where now people various golfers are trying to own every different color right yeah that. like well i wear blue on sundays and then you're the yeah, guy who, yeah suddenly ricky fowler who went to oklahoma state for one year before dropping out if that uh, is now like orange is his color and you just think oh come on like this is slightly annoying so i will i will hedge a little bit okay uh, well, let's go. Let's keep going, and we'll go to my last good thing. And I think that our last good things are going to be pretty similar here. There's going to be some overlap because, as mentioned, we're both sitting in our backyards right now on a beautiful day. You could have just walked over, and we could have done this podcast in person, but that would involve leaving our our various apartments, and that would be difficult. But I am, in fact, sitting in my backyard, and I am waiting now. This is. I, I think we're going on hour six. I have a brisket on the smoker. And I want to say that my next good thing, my last good thing for this week, is brisket. I think it's a wonderful meat. And around this time, uh, due to the Jewish holidays, there are a ton of briskets available in the grocery stores near us. And what I especially like, so I don't want to get too deep into meat science for you here, Luke. But so your standard brisket, there's like the full brisket, which is like a 15 pound thing and would be a huge endeavor to cook uh, most of the time when you buy a brisket it's something called the first cut brisket or brisket flat and it's good it's delicious it's like your standard brisket that's I think generally what's what's used for the Jewish holidays and so that leaves the second cut brisket which is a lot harder to find in traditional supermarkets but when they buy so many first cut briskets or when they buy so many full briskets and cut them up to sell the first cut ones you can find some of the second cut ones uh, and they tend to be a little bit cheaper and they're way fattier and way better and so they're definitely not as good for you and they don't slice as neatly but in terms of like what makes a tastier barbecue meat it's definitely that it's what is called the brisket point and it's like the really fatty part if you go to if you go to a barbecue place is what they call the moist brisket and so right now for the first time I am working on exclusively the fatty part of the brisket on the smoker uh, like I said we're about six hours down it looks like the internal temperature as we speak is right around 181 so it gets up to 195 I take that out uh, I'm I'm extremely excited for how this plays out I, I'm excited for you. Yeah, as you said, we're both in our back gardens as we speak. We both have back gardens in New York, which is a slight rarity. In yeah, I think that makes us very lucky, guys. Very lucky. And, um, and, and yeah, I think 
You know, there's a few. I have a grill. I'm not in, as in, as advanced as you are in. Few are, Luke. Science. Few are. Few but, are. But I do have some goals this summer that I want to accomplish. I, I feel like I had a good summer last. You know, we cooked some. We cooked ribs a bunch of time, chicken, all kinds of stuff. But I haven't tackled the brisket yet. And I would actually. You you mentioned it. I that is something that's kind of on my list that I want to try to do at some point. So the summer. challenge is the challenge for brisket is like you really can't cook it too hot because it needs to cook very very slow so with a traditional grill it's hard to keep the grill cool enough for the brisket like you need some sort of thermometer to let you know that it's not like way above 300 degrees or anything like that uh, and then also just the amount of time it takes it's like it, it is I find that the biggest challenge for me a lot of times is not it's like because I just I have a I have a really nice grill and so I can basically just put the thing on and then leave like I I don't I don't leave an open fire but I could right like I could I could go away for seven hours and come back and I'd probably be better off than how it goes which is like once every 90 minutes or so I'm like let me see if there's still meat there and I open up the thing and I poke at it and I play with it and really you don't want to do any of that and you know it, I, I I love cooking thing. I, I cook a lot of stews in the winter time and stuff and I love just taking kind of a cheaper cut of meat and just cooking it down and just letting it sort of tenderize over and over of course in stew you're doing it in liquid and um, which which is which is more comforting in some respects because you just kind of keep it low and let it and you can understand how this meat tenderizes right because it's it's literally it's, it's literally bathing in liquid for a long time it's, of course it's going to tenderize and stuff so i yeah of course i'm i'm a little worried about burning a brisket to a crisp after 3 hours <laughs> instead of letting it cook slowly but definitely something i want to do in the summer um any other goals you think i should be setting for myself well i i want to jump in and just give the best piece of barbecue advice i have and it's something that is very straightforward but uh not necessarily easy to pull off and something i didn't really know until I moved, like this is now going back seven years, but uh, when I when I first started getting into like barbecuing and smoking meats and stuff, I always had used the traditional charcoal briquette, which are like the little cubed shaped charcoal things, mm -hmm. and they also make uh, lump charcoal, which are uh, it's like a less processed charcoal. It's become increasingly common, and I've seen it in more and more places now. But it's the charcoal that's actually shaped like little pieces of wood, and it's it's more natural. And it the taste, the difference in taste is massive. It's just it tastes way less like chemically, and like maybe some of it is just a. a a mind thing like because way it looks like little pieces of wood and so it must taste more natural but I really do believe it tastes uh, it tastes cleaner and less like there's like a sort of a chemically smell that comes with a lot of the the briquettes and you don't get that with better charcoal like it's a it's a good investment to make to just buy slightly nicer charcoal because it burns longer and it burns cleaner and if you need it to it burns hotter and I think the taste is just like far better Interesting. Good to know. Yeah, I uh, uh, I also ditched lighter fluid for that exact reason. Now we use a charcoal kettle thing, you know, when right. you tip it over. Yeah. And, and, like, instantly you could already taste, which is a little creepy thinking about how, like, oh, man, this tasted a little like lighter fluid <laughs> yeah and and for me for me it's like a it's like a very uh it's a it's a it's a struggle because i love 
fire so much as you know and i love playing with lighter fluid which i don't recommend it's extremely dangerous but for me personally i just i just happen to love fire and so i want to have lighter fluid and play with it but yeah it's not it's not something i want to eat yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i do want to smoke something i haven't smoked uh, any meat last summer and I do I, that is something I'd like to do it's too. a it's a fun thing to do because then at the end it's like a lo it's like a it's like an arts and crafts project except at the end you don't have like something for your refrigerator you don't have something for the outside of your refrigerator you have something for the inside of your refrigerator how about that even better it's yeah even better um, and it tastes delicious it's meat tell me your last good thing last thing speaking of backyards uh, the one thing that I, apart from the beautiful day and being able to work outside from home in the back garden, which of course is so many positives, is that I have a pet cat called Simba, and it is, I know this is going to sound slightly ruthless, but I'm fully on team cat here, it is so much fun watching him try to catch birds. Uh, he's just constantly zoning in. Cats are the snipers of the wild in many ways. You know, they're constantly figuring out how to hunt and hide and try to pounce on cat pounce on birds rather um never caught one because it has made me appreciate that birds like flying is incredibly useful evolutionary tactic right like you don't need it's, you don't even need to be smart in or if you can fly because you can just fly fly away it's so easy to escape things and travel and um so yeah he's never caught one yet he's getting closer he's caught a few mice but, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to another summer of watching my cat try to hunt birds. Uh, wait, it's, it's caught mice, like, in your backyard? Yeah, slightly concerning that there were mice to be caught. Yeah. instantly caught them, <laughs> which, which, which was... Well, crazy. that's good. I mean, that'll keep... That's, like, why all the bodegas have cats, right? Is that it keeps the mice away, then they learn. Mice are pretty smart. I mean... I tend to think that the mice, what we call mice in New York City, might just be very small rats, right? But we don't want to use the rat word. But those things tend to be pretty smart about like what to stay away from and so if they know you have a cat i like to believe they're going to stay away from your apartment and look like I th he's caught two of them he's two for two as far as i know and um it really was a situation where as soon as it came into the you know as soon as it sort of entered our property the cat immediately caught it and then again and then we haven't seen one since and so i think maybe these uh Maybe one of the surviving mice got the word back and said, you know, there's a, there's a nasty cat. Now, here. how does Simba handle the outdoor situation? Do you have, like, a fence around your yard so there's no chance he's going to bail? No chance he's going to bail. Got to, yeah, it's sort of bricked, you know, it's sort of you've got a stairway down to the backyard and it's sort of surrounded by, it's basically like a nice sort of cage in many ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he's not going to... Um, it, it, he's not going to escape. The, it's just fun watching the way cats hunt. I mean, it is so interesting the way they do it. They're just so strategic in the way they kind of hide and they look for the high ground and they kind of crouch down and it's all about sort of speed. They're not like dogs, obviously, who hunt in packs, who kind of try to surround their prey. You know, they, they kind of just uh, hang out in a spot that you wouldn't necessarily notice them. And then they just pounce in really lightning quick fashion they're, they're really fascinating creatures really. They, it feels like cats always sort of have their own agenda which and I, I think i've made this point even on the podcast before like cats don't really care they like you cohabitate with a cat and the cat's like kind of up to its own thing and like maybe it appreciates that you give it food and you give it warmth and you pet it and make it feel good but like the dog's life 
it feels like it is entirely centered around the owner, right? Like, all the dog cares about is, like, you, the person it loves who feeds it sometimes. And the cat's like, hey, this person lives with me, but I got my own thing going on, and, like, <laughs> just don't get in my way. Very much so. I mean, look, you could take a corgi and drop it from drop it into the wild after a long life of being with an owner and it would be totally lost it would right? die i mean it would be sad it would die, die immediately die so quickly whereas a cat no matter how many years it's spent even a pretty old one they would probably figure out a way to survive just because that's kind of how they're programmed they're just kind of programmed to like sniff around and track food and and hunt things pretty well and and hunt independently and that's the big thing about cats right like they can they, they can hunt. They're very self-sustaining, and they're all out there for itself. Whereas dogs, their asset is that they're very social creatures, but they need to hunt in packs in order to uh, share the spoils of their way. Yeah, one of my one of my neighbors has there, and I'm looking right now, and their window is open, so I don't want to say this too loud because I don't want to. I, except, I guess I there's no shame in admitting that I noticed that they have a cat because sometimes. So like, I'm also in a sort of a cage situation here, but there are enough little holes in the cage that it's pretty easy for a cat that's like passing through so like sometimes I'll just be sitting in the backyard and this cat will just like walk through the backyard like on its way somewhere else and it's like oh hey. <laughs> good, good morning cats definitely, cats definitely do that like they're very much like always on their way to doing something or like patrolling or like yeah <laughs> yeah and like you you can look out at night and you'll see like the cat like climbing atop the razor wire that's behind my backyard and it's like where is it going yeah but it's probably probably on on route to pounce some bird somewhere we have a lot of birds i must say i do respect that about cats though that like i do respect that they're kind of independent souls see i'm the opposite i'm the opposite i want i'm a dog i we can't have a our landlord won't let us have a dog or else we'd have a dog i'm a dog guy all the way because i just want to be loved but dogs are so anti-Ted that, that you need to give a dog a task in order for it to feel fulfilled. Like, they're just little foot soldiers in many ways. Yeah, like, I want, like, a little army of dogs that follow <laughs> me around and... and okay, well, the, if you want to be the leader of dogs... I can well, be, obviously, like, I'm the leader, yeah. It, it seems like a, a cat is a bit more of a Ted creature in that it kind of does what it wants. Yeah, but, but it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't like... I, I like it, you know, like, I, I've, I mean, I always think about, like, the... They're, like, the joke videos of, like... You know, obviously, we've all seen the videos of, like, the soldier coming home from war and the dog reacting. And then there's ones with the cat, and the cat just sits there. You know, like, I want... does not care. If I want a pet, if I want a pet, it's for, like, it's for validation. It's to make me feel like I have worth. And, like, I know that, like, when I, when I had a dog, when I was, like, growing up, and I came in from school, and the dog ran up to me and started, like, licking my face and, and running around my feet, and was all excited to see me. It was like, all right, I'm... I'm I'm worth something to someone, you know, even if it's this crappy little dog. <laughs> yeah, no, cats definitely, like, uh, very, uh, very much uh, take it or leave it, right? <laughs> like you, have to kind of, you have to kind of strive for their affection, whereas dogs are constantly... No, you, if you're, the, if you're the person with the food, the dog loves you. Oh, absolutely adores you. And even if the even if you don't have the food, even if you're just somebody new, they just kind of dogs yeah. kind of just want your love. Whereas cats just kind of do that. Yeah, thing. I don't care. All right. Uh, well, that's a good place to end. Um, Luke, thanks so much for joining again. You can check out everything Luke's got at uh, he's at Luke Kerdinian. Uh, we spelled it last week. K e r r d i n d i n e e n. That's at Luke. 
L-U-K-E-K-E-R-R-D-I-N-E-E-N. And all the stuff's at for the win, FTW.USAToday.com. As is mine, I'm on the internet at OG Ted Berg in various social media formats. You can check out the For the Win podcast on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate us, review us on iTunes. Luke, thanks again for, for joining us. Of course, thanks for having me and enjoy your backyard. I will. End peace. <laughs> <laughs>